Hey friend, welcome to Job with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. This podcast is a listener-supported outreach of the ministry Authentic Intimacy. An article was published a few years ago by Psychology Today confirming what many of us kind of already suspected. Around half of all first marriages end in divorce. You might be surprised to know that second and third marriages fail at even a higher rate, with 67% of second marriages and 73% of third marriages ending in divorce. But what if there was another way? What if it were possible to get married and stay married, negotiating the challenges that marriage might bring? Well, this is the heart of my conversation with my guest today, Tony and Carrie Newhoff. A few years ago, Tony, who is a divorce attorney, published a book called Before You Split. She's really offering advice to couples whose marriages are on that brink of divorce. As an expert of close witness to the challenges of divorce and someone who has navigated her own marital struggles, Tony has authored a book full of honest and practical advice to help couples decide if divorce really is the best or only option. If you're someone who's thinking about divorce or walking through a divorce, or even close to a person who's thinking about it, I encourage you to listen to this episode and think through if there are any other options for you before you decide to split. And this is a quick disclaimer. The advice that Tony offers is for people who are in struggling marriages, not abusive ones. And Tony will explain that in our conversation. All right, let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Tony and Carrie Newhoff. Well, Tony and Carrie, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation on Job with Julie. It's great to get to know you. Tony, I really enjoyed um, reading your most recent book that talks about just giving marriage another chance, like before you're ready to split up, you know, here's some things to consider. And you have a very unique perspective, first of all, because you were in that situation personally, but second mm-hmm. of all, because you're a divorce attorney. So usually these books are written by counselors, pastors, carry your pastor, or have been a pastor in, in your previous career. But a book on marriage written by a divorce attorney seems like a little bit of an anomaly. So how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Honestly, it wasn't something that I set out to do. I started practicing family law. And uh, after a couple of years, I noticed some themes uh, I, no- I noticed that um, there were some people who were separating over over issues that seemed to just not require separating. And I won't be judgmental. I know you can't always see the full story from the mm-hmm. outside, but it just seemed to me that there was a real need for another voice in the conversation. And after having seen what my clients were going through, I thought I've, I picked up a thing or two that it may be helpful for struggling couples to consider. And Carrie and I had a steep learning curve in our own marriage. So putting those together, I've, it was Carrie's book agent who mm-hmm. came up with the idea and said, you should write a, a book proposal. You should write a book. And I thought, oh, okay, you say that to everyone. <laughs> You're a book agent. <laughs> so I didn't really take her seriously until I saw her later on. And she said, where's that book proposal? Mm-hmm. So that got the ball rolling. Yeah. And was that concurrent with your own marriage struggles? Like 
were you at the same time working through some of your struggles and seeing this in your work or was it a, a different season? It wasn't concurrent. No, mm-hmm. Carrie and I went through years of struggle. And at that point in my legal career, I was working in hospitals in leadership capacity. So it was after we had already made some significant progress in transforming our own marriage that I then really felt this calling to go into family law mm-hmm. and be a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. So going into family law, were there situations where couples were headed towards divorce and you were able to help them reconcile? Or was it just more an observation of why they were divorcing? I wish I had had that opportunity more often. I found, at least in in our area in central Ontario, by the time people came to me for help, it was normally two or three years after they'd already made that decision to separate and they tried to work out the issues and it just hadn't been going well. So they turned to legal help afterward. But there were some cases where I would have an initial consult with somebody who was just thinking about going through a divorce and and I was able to send them to one of my counseling colleagues. Mm-hmm. So there were a few of those cases. I I took that opportunity anytime there was an opening. Mm-hmm. And Tony, you are pretty open in the book sharing some of your own marriage struggles, but it sounds like you're a strong woman and, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys had some conflict. Did you ever consider divorce? I have to be honest and say that I did. I did consider it, not to the point where I went to a lawyer to figure out my legal rights and obligations, but I did, I think, think about it because we live in a culture where that is such an observable option and out of the desperation of my pain at the time. it's And I think pain leads us to think about escape in all kinds of forms. And and that was one of the one of the forms of escape that I, I did consider, I'll be honest. Although it wasn't what I really wanted. And I recognized after I reflected on it that what I really wanted was to get rid of that painful version of our marriage and find something better. Hmm. How about you, Carrie? Yeah, I I never really, I was sort of one of those people who thought divorce is not an option. So I, I probably didn't take it as seriously as Tony did. And, you know, to be fair, if I was married to me, I might have considered it as well. So, you know, that was a tough season. But yeah, I just, I figured we were going to figure it out, but I didn't know how we were going to figure it out. So I definitely... Mm-hmm. You know, it was a mutual tough season. I was frustrated with Tony. Tony was frustrated with me. But no, I just didn't think that that was an option. And I didn't know how we were going to get better. We went to a series of counselors. We took a lot of steps. And by the grace of God, we got through it. But no, I, I, uh, you know, even when we hit a wall since then, it's not like our marriage is perfect. It's a lot better. It's like, oh, this is pretty tough right now, but we'll figure out a way somehow. Mm-hmm. And at that time when you were going through that darkest season, was that when you were in ministry? Yeah, it was. It was uh, around the mid 2000s. So like mm-hmm. 2005 to 2010, maybe. I had gone through some deep personal burnout in 2006. So I'm sure that was a contributor. 
heading into it and coming out of it. It wasn't easy to live with me. Although to give Tony full marks, when I actually did burn out in the summer of 2006, basically my energy and enthusiasm ground to a halt. She was incredibly compassionate and understanding, but there was a lot Mm -hmm. of conflict leading into that. And then out of that, yeah. So it was while I was leading a church, I was actually uh, in the process of exiting a denomination, replanting as what became Conexus Church, facing a lot of growth challenges, and then initially for a season, some decline challenges. So there was a lot of turbulence in the air. And of course, you know, when you have stability somewhere, it makes stability at home easier, but it felt like everything was on fire at the time. Mm-hmm. Boy, and I have a real compassion for pastors and ministry marriages, um, you know, because I think sometimes when you're struggling, you don't know where you can get help. And there's so much pressure and spiritual warfare and boy, it's tough. There is. And to be fair, I think sometimes we make it harder on ourselves than it needs to be. So, you know, that's part of my work these days. I stepped out of lead pastoring about eight years ago. And now I try to help leaders. Like I have a lot of empathy for that. I, I had like zero empathy for people who burned out prior to Mm. my burning out. And now if you come to me with a burnout story, I just sit down, look you in the eye and let's talk. I get it. And nobody ever intends to have a bad marriage. Nobody intends to burn out. Nobody tends to. But, you know, here's the thing for any ministry leaders listening. This is, and by the grace of God, it didn't happen. But when you're in a place of burnout, when your marriage is not good, that's where horrible stories get written. That's where you Mm. end up having an affair That's where you end up quitting your job when you're not called to leave. That's when you end up blowing your church up or saying something that is impossible to recover from. And by the grace of God, we didn't make a major mistake like that in that season. But man, I get how it happens. Like I get it. Mm -hmm. And the good news is it is preventable. And I think that's why Tony does what she does. And that's why I do what I do is we want to help other couples not end up in the same ditch we ended up in. And a lot of couples end up there. Yeah. Boy, Tony, you start out your book by almost as a preface saying, I want to talk about the difference between a harmful marriage and an happy marriage. Mm-hmm. Why is it so important that we make that distinction before we ever start doing the work of trying to repair or save a marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, especially in my work as a divorce attorney, I saw some relationships ending that needed to end for the sake of the well-being of everyone involved. And so where there's an abusive situation or, you know, something that's toxic or harmful, it's sometimes it's hard to distinguish, you know, what is harmful versus what is just bad circumstances or a rut or unhappy, like deeply unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I would never want to be in the position of encouraging somebody to stay and dig in and try to bend to uh, abusive behavior. Um, so it's hard to distinguish that abusive label really, I, I think, in my opinion, gets overused, mm-hmm. needs some more nuances. And and so what I say is if you're listening to this and you're wondering whether your relationship is abusive or not, then take that brave step and talk to somebody you trust, whether it's a doctor, a therapist, a pastor, somebody who you implicitly trust, where you can share your story in all its fullness and process this question of whether it's abusive or not, and Mm -hmm. then take it from there. Yeah. And we will link to a couple of other podcast conversations we've had 
that are tackling that issue of how do we identify abuse within marriage and what is sort of the normal kind of unhealthy things that happen in marriage versus when it, it crosses that threshold. So that's a very important distinction to make. But Tony, you say when you're in a state of being very unhappy in marriage and marriage isn't going well, you really have three choices. You can split, you can survive, or you can work on saving the marriage. And I'd like to talk about these three choices. The first one, splitting, is when they come and see the divorce attorney, when they say, hey, we've tried given everything we have to save, maybe it's just not working, we're miserable. Talk to the person who's making that decision right now. What are the ups and downs of splitting, of divorcing, of separating? And when do we know that that's probably the option we need to pick? Mm-hmm. I always tell people to go slow, like mm-hmm. slow is your friend, just like bringing a boat into a dock. <laughs> you don't want to do that quickly. Approaching this question of splitting too is one of those occasions where it really pays to take your time. Because I found in my many conversations with couples who were splitting or with an individual who was going through a separation They have a preconceived idea of how it's going to go. They've had a conversation or two where they've decided or they think they've decided that, you know, the kids will stay with me full time and they'll be with you every other weekend or, you know, I'm going to keep the house and you're going to keep the pension. And so they would come to me and say, this is the way it's going to go. But then the actual date of separation brings a new day in many cases. It's a new version of reality. And uh, often when people are more informed about what their legal rights and obligations are, they make different decisions. And so then I've, I, I would have a client who was not only dealing with the reality of the separation and the consequences, but also the huge gap between what they were expecting and then what actually happened. And so I I remember clients, this wasn't everyone, but it was some clients who, uh, one man in particular, I remember him standing in front of me after he had signed off his final paperwork, three years after his divorce had started. And he said, if only I'd known then what I know now, I would have worked harder to save my marriage. And that was a reflection of the process being more painful than he had anticipated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people sometimes see divorce as the easy way out. And I think what you learn in the counseling field or in family law is there's no easy way out. Like Mm -hmm. divorce may be the option, the only option you're left with or the right option, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really disruptive Uh, And I'd love for both of you to speak into this. How would you describe kind of the process of divorce and maybe some of the things that people don't anticipate that end up happening when a couple splits? Well, Tony, I think you're the pro on this, so you you give a first crack. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, I I think one, one of the issues is they don't anticipate how difficult it will be to separate the husband-wife relationship from the co-parent relationship and um, navigating their way through the unforgiven grievances, the unhealthy communication patterns. I think in many cases where we were, where we, the lawyers, were recommending that people go to counseling to 
improve their relationship for the purpose of parenting, it was a hard pill to swallow because people didn't want to invest time and energy into a relationship that they'd already decided to leave behind. In a significant number of cases, people did it because they recognized the value to their kids. I think also often all of the financial cards are not on the table when people separate or people don't go into their separation with a full understanding of what their complete financial picture looks like. So sometimes there are unrealistic expectations around support or property division that um, catch people by surprise. Yeah, I think I, I would echo that, Tony. I think, you know, in my experience as a pastor, people figure, well, I'm going to get the kids, I'll get the house, you know, the financial settlement will be just fine. And you don't think through, and I'm not saying, you know, divorce is the end of the road, but I'm just saying it's a very different life than the one you pictured, particularly if the kids, your, your kids pictured. Like, I look at where my life would have gone had we split up. And, you know, it probably wouldn't be in pastoral ministry for the best part of pastoral ministry that was still to come. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And we just finished a great weekend with our kids. You know, they're grown now. One's in his 30s, the other's in his 20s. And we have a blast. And that would have been a completely different rewritten story. But when I was tempted to think about leaving, I would just think about what is the story I want to write? Not today, because emotionally I'm not in a good place, but the story I want to write 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. And I'm really glad that we chose the save option, you know, (laughs) for our marriage, because it turned out to be, I think, a lot better than either of us would have dreamed almost 20 years ago when it looked like it was falling apart. Mm. And the research actually shows that to be true. And a lot of marriages that... I know you're very familiar with the study, Tony, because you cite it in your book, but can you talk about what the research shows when couples are in that place of turmoil and they either Mm. choose to stay together or they divorce? Sure. Yeah. There was a study that looked at happiness on the, for struggling couples. These are all couples who were on the verge of, of splitting. They looked at their happiness rating currently and of the couples who said that their goal was to be happily married in five years, they did um, a study comparing two groups, the ones who stayed together and the ones who split. And what they found was that there was a greater chance in five years of being happily married, like meeting that goal, if you stayed together versus splitting. Mm-hmm. And so that means the people that split, they didn't find happiness in another relationship. Yeah. Uh- yes, that the, mm-hmm. that these that statistically speaking, their chances of being happily married in five years was lower. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And it's possible again. I mean, maybe you're in an abusive marriage and that's not Mm -hmm. what we're talking about here. We're talking about an unhappy marriage. But you know, if Tony and I had made that decision to split, here's what happened. I had stuff that I needed to work on. Tony had things that she needed to work on. And if we had split and decided that that was going to be the solution to our problem, then what that really means is you know, I move into my new life and maybe another relationship with all of my unresolved issues, meeting up with somebody who probably has her unresolved issues. Tony goes off, takes her unresolved issues, meets a new guy with his unresolved issues. And now you've got other problems that you have to sort out. So I think we often think of, you know, a new relationship as a panacea. 
It's going to be like mm-hmm. a first date all the time. And mm-hmm. what I taught myself and what I try to remind leaders to do is, no, I'm going to treat Tony like this was our first date, like we were just meeting, like pursue her with the same passion that I would pursue another woman. And our marriage is going to get better and then work on my junk. So I've been working on my mm-hmm. stuff. Tony's been working on her stuff. And we got to a point we never thought we would where we are really, really happily married. And again, I don't want to paint a perfect picture. No, we have disagreements. But if you look at how it was then, how it is now, it's better, way better. Yeah. Boy, I love that. Okay. So the second option is survive. And this is Mm -hmm. the option where I think sometimes because of our faith, people might say divorce isn't an option. Like we might be miserable, but we're not splitting. Or sometimes it's for the kids. Like for the Mm -hmm. sake of the kids, let's just endure this. We'll be roommates. There's not going to be intimacy. Talk about that as an option. I know in your book, your basic summary is that's not a good long-term strategy. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, as humans, we're wired for intimacy. You know, we're wired to have that close connection. And so when it's absent in our you know, one of our closest relationships, it causes problems. I mean, we can handle that emotional pain for some time, but eventually it's likely to leak out in some form if we're just not emotionally connected or emotionally responding to each other. So I would say surviving is that state where you stay together, just as you described, Julie, but you're not, you're not emotionally connected. You don't feel necessarily like you have each other's backs. It doesn't feel deeply satisfying. Mm-hmm. And yes, so surviving is not a not a good long-term strategy in my opinion, but it can be a great temporary strategy while you work on your emotional connectedness and your intimacy. Yeah, I, I would say just adding to that, like we talked about that because your kids get older quickly. It's so amazing. It's like you think they're going to be babies forever. They're not babies forever. Then they're going to be in elementary forever. They're not in elementary. Before you know it, they've gone to college. And now our kids are pushing 10 years out of college. It's like, what just happened? And so, you know, I'm not very good at math. I did not realize when we got married that we would spend more time without kids than with kids. Like we had our kids early in our marriage. And I didn't do the math and realize, oh my gosh, there's decades ahead. Like we're going to have more time together than we did as a family living at home because our kids went to college and they, they did fine. They didn't have to come back. It's like, wow, that went fast. Mm-hmm. So you either become roommates or you become business partners. And we've seen a lot of couples in their 40s and 50s develop their own life, their own friends, their own individual sleeping in separate bedrooms. And again, I think Tony's right. That can be a good interim strategy. But at the end of the day, like I realized we fell in love, we were attracted to each other. There were things that made us pursue each other, which led up to the wedding. Why does that have to die just because the kids are older? And so we've worked really, really hard over the last 10, 12 years to develop, you know, one of my favorite definitions of intimacy is intimacy is shared experiences. And if you think about the people that you have an intimate friendship or relationship with, it's always shared experiences. And so uh, we've developed hobbies. I've learned to do some new things. Tony's learned to do some new things so that we can do activities together. And we, for the most part, enjoying the season of life. And it's rich. It's like dating, except you have money and time. It's amazing. (laughs) 
Yeah, boy, that does sound good uh-huh. <laughs> for those of you who have kids at home. Like that, that time is coming. But I, I think what you're saying is really true. There are a lot of couples who are just enduring that season of having kids and teenagers in the home, and they're just treading water. And then yeah. probably when the kids leave, now they feel like they have two options: do we split or do we start really working on intimacy? Do we save our marriage? Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, hey, you have the resources, the energy, and the time right now work on saving and it's worth it. Well, we were students when we met, like I was, uh, we met in law school. So, you know, it was first year law, all your money's going to tuition and books and blah, 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 blah. And now we don't have to go to Taco Bell anymore. Like it's pretty cool. So (laughs) we can, we can actually have some fun together and do some traveling together and activities together and hobbies together. And, you know, so there is hope at the end of the tunnel. And the other problem is if you put all of your identity into your children, You know, like we have one son who lives on the West Coast, another one who lives just west of Toronto, two hours away. We're sitting here all day long going, I wonder when the kids are going to come home. I wonder when the kids Mm. are going to, you know, that's a pretty miserable existence because we love our kids and we love spending time with them. But you have just invested your identity in somebody else. That's a horrible Mm. philosophy of life and not what you're supposed to be. So we really enjoy spending a lot of quality time with our kids. But we have to have life independent of our kids. And I know a lot of people who are just miserable. Well, so-and-so moved to Tokyo or so-and-so moved here or so-and-so moved there. Or my, my you know, daughter lives in Louisiana or whatever. And it's like, well, if you've built your life expecting your happiness to come from other people, that's going to be a tough life. Yeah. And you're probably not going to parent well either. Like that's when no, you turn your into kids, being manipulative. And, and your kids yeah. are like, wow, I have really clingy parents. You know, you have a clingy toddler and all of a sudden it's the parents who are clingy. Right, right. And there's something attractive about parents who have a life outside of their kids to their kids because Mm -hmm. they pick up on the neediness and then it's like, I don't know. No, it's so true. Hey friend, just breaking in for a moment to let you know that Reclaim 2.0 is coming up in just a few months. About a year ago, we gathered together in Cleveland, Ohio to reclaim God's design for sex and marriage, and it was an incredible event. Now, I know not everyone was able to make it there, so now we have the opportunity to gather together virtually with the same objective, inviting God to reclaim our understanding of sex within marriage. This virtual event will be taking place February 15th through 17th, 2024. And this virtual conference will feature respected experts, Dr. Michael Seitzma and Dr. Jennifer Degler, including also personal testimonies, some teaching from me, and live Q&A sessions. We're going to cover a lot during the conference, but some main topics will include the difference between having sex and building intimacy, how to address violations of trust that make sex feel too vulnerable, how to pursue intimacy even through those busy years of parenting, and how to see the beauty of navigating perceived incompatibilities in your sexual relationship. Well, right now we have early bird pricing, and so you can get a ticket for just $67. And if you're an Authentic Intimacy member, you also receive a 10% discount on tickets. This is an event that you won't want to miss. God cares about marriage. He cares about sexuality. So invite Him to reclaim your heart in marriage in 2024. Well, Tony, you spend the bulk of your book really showing couples how they can invest in saving their marriage. And we're not going to go through all the things you recommend. That's why people need to get the book. But I want to hit a few of the key ones. One of them 
is you talk about the importance of getting out of the victim mentality. And if you've been in an unhappy marriage for a while, you most likely have adopted that at some level. And I wonder even in your own marriage, if you would each say, yeah, I was in a place where I felt sorry for myself. Everything was the other person's fault. Can you talk about what that feels like and then how we get out of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that um, that victim mentality. It seems to really resonate with people. And it's something that I definitely saw over and over in my divorce law practice. And it had happened to Carrie and I too. Like we were in a season uh, during that season of conflict where we had a tough time with domestic activities, just, you know, dividing them up, getting them done. You know, the kids were in public school and we were working full time. I felt like I was a victim of Carrie's workaholism, like his work hours were a bit on the long side. And so I felt like I was just so exhausted. I couldn't get things done when I came home from work. And so I would just play with the kids. And so the impact on Carrie was that he just wanted to stay away from the chaos. And then on the other hand, Carrie would say, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a victim of of Tony's laziness. And so we were pointing the finger at each other, but the reality was, you know, there was a kernel of truth in what each of us saw in the other person. Mm-hmm. No, I, I was actually not pulling my side of the bargain and, you know, doing some work during the evening and encouraging the kids to pitch in. And Carrie was away a little too much. And the problem was when you're each pointing the finger at each other, you don't really look for your own part in what's going on. And so I was exhausted, yes. Um, but I didn't look around at other reasons for my exhaustion. And it turned out with some counseling, those were uncovered. Part of it was my own poor mental health. Part of it was that I really wasn't connecting with friends and being authentic. So I was missing those, you know, those other friendships that are really important to a health of a marriage. And so it's like having a victim mentality is like putting on prescription glasses that are not right for you. All you can see are these blurry images and you miss the details and the nuances. And and that's what happens with the victim mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt like a victim too, you know, at for a season. And Tony's right. I mean, the domestic struggle I'd have. So as a leader, you know, and Tony's a leader in her own right. So I'm not claiming a monopoly here. But, you know, I would come from leading a complex growing organization where sometimes I felt like I was over my head in what I knew how to do. So there's sort of the chaos at work from rapid growth. And then I come home and it's chaos. And I'm like, I can't handle all this chaos. And one of my unhealthy coping mechanisms is I'm a bit of a neat freak. I'm, I'm, you know, undiagnosed OCD, et cetera, et cetera. So I like things to be organized and tidy. And I've realized, and I think a healthier framework now, oh, having order around the house and in my personal life helps me make sense of a leadership world that's a little bit beyond my control that I can't always control. Now, you know, I used to get upset and I'd be like, well, the lawn needs to be cut. And Tony would look at it and the kids would look at it and go, I think it grew a quarter inch in the last three days. I don't think it needs to be cut. (laughs) Empirically, they were right. But on the inside, I was messed up enough that I'm like, no, this is so it was an escape for me. I didn't have to deal with it. It was one of the few things in my life where 
I started something and an hour later it was finished. Leadership is never like that. Ministry is never like that. And so now, you know, I still like a cut grass. I still like an ordered house, but I realize, oh, that's my crazy. Like I'm actually the crazy person here and uh, it doesn't really need to be cut today. And if I want to cut it, that's my choice. But if it interferes with the key relationships, like with Tony or if the kids are around, then that's a really poor trade-off. So I've had to disentangle myself and it was easy. And I remember I had a moment, I think it was my mom. My mom said to me one day, and you know, sometimes you complain to the people who are around you. And I probably said something vaguely critical about Tony. And she just looked at me and she said, you know, Tony's pretty great. Hmm. You should watch it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, mom, you're right. You're right. Tony's pretty great. And, uh, mm. And so what I realize now is most of the issues that I projected onto Tony are my issues. And then if she's actually going through something and she's gone through things over the years, I have a limited ability to fix it. And I'm not a fixer. Like I fix problems at work all day, but I'm not here to fix the love of my life. I'm here to listen, empathize, help, guide, but it's not my responsibility to fix her. So that's years and years of counseling compressed, but it just... It made for me feeling like a victim. And of course, you play the game. Well, I'm sure if I was married to someone else, it wouldn't be this way. Well, that's a beautiful lie that lasts for about 30 minutes in a new relationship. And then you're into a whole other mess. Yeah. You both have said this, but it's part of this is so important of doing the work, of figuring Mm. out your own stuff. You talk about identifying your mud and you tell a cute story about how you got a mud bath and how it got in everywhere and every little crevice and and just how our stuff is so in us that we don't see it. And it does take that process of the Holy Spirit doing work in us, of counseling. You know, I also like what you said there, Carrie, the importance of surrounding yourself with people who are going to be marriage positive mm-hmm. and who are going to say positive things about your spouse. We need to be reminded of the positive, not just hang around people that reinforce the negative. So that would be one very important step. A second one you talk about is identifying and stating your expectations. Why do you think that is so key to saving your marriage? Well, we all come into marriage with expectations, but we haven't necessarily shared them or even realized them ourselves. And so just to pick on one example, Carrie and I had quite different expectations around money and finances, and it was a hot button topic for us for years. Even if you've gone through premarital counseling, which we did, sometimes these unspoken expectations don't even really surface until you live in a circumstance where they're likely mm-hmm. to surface. So, you know, our our um, expectations around money didn't really surface while we lived in an apartment, but they came a lot more apparent once we moved into a house and Carrie started pastoring. Yeah, identifying any hidden expectations is such a key part of trying to work through conflict. And so, for example, if you're arguing over, you know, whether you should put $600 in savings or whether you should buy a more expensive lawnmower, 
then it becomes a a heated (laughs) argument. It's worthwhile to take a step back and even do some reflection on your own, each individually, to try to identify, you know, what hidden expectations were underneath that heated exchange, and then try to come together with more insight and see how you might hear from each other what your values are, what your beliefs are, and see if you can adjust those expectations and draw out, draw into your creativity to come up with other options that, you know, that may be solutions to the the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think often we we get all caught up in the heatedness of it and hurt feelings, but we don't stop to do that deeper work and try to figure out what triggered it in the first place. Yeah. So there's the unspoken expectations, but how about like the spoken expectations that aren't realistic? You know, like Carrie, you shared some of your probably spoken expectations about neatness or you know, that how the house looked, but those, you came to the conclusion that those were unrealistic expectations. How do you get to the place where you can gauge, like, is this a healthy expectation or not? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think a lot of that is trying to understand the conversation or the values under the conversation. So for example, with the house, one of our early decisions, and I mean, I went from law into ministry. So the budget dropped meaningfully in that (laughs) transition, right? Yeah. But one of the things we did was we've had someone to do the house, a cleaner from the early stages of the marriage. And that was really good because it took off Something that Tony, I mean, is it fair to say out loud in public, you do not enjoy cleaning the house on a weekly basis? Is that fair? No, I don't enjoy it. It is not life giving for me. But well, I, when you I do it, you do it so well. Like it's better clean <laughs> than when I do it. Anyway, yeah, it's not life giving for you. So that was an easy one, and we've had that for thirty years. Like you can write stuff like that in your budget, even if you have a very small income. Mm-hmm. We're able to do it. And maybe at the beginning it was 60 or $80. Now it's just over $100 a week. Somebody comes in, cleans the house. It's not perfect, but we don't have to worry about it. And we both kind of sign off on that. As far as the money conversation, one of the best moves we made, I went to, quote, financial experts numerous times over the years trying to get resolution. Never could figure it out. But about 10 years ago, we hired an independent financial planner. And what that means, this is not someone trying to sell you mutual funds or stocks or anything like that. This is someone, it's a fee-for-service basis, and he's great. We've referred so many friends to him. He sat down and said, well, what are your values? And we both said, we want to be generous people. And usually when financial planners looked at our giving, they would go, oh, you're giving too much, cut it back. It's like, well, we're Christians, and we believe in tithing, and we believe in this. And it's like, well, you need to do this. And then he got into financial security and he said to Tony, well, how much money do you need in retirement to feel safe? And Tony gave him a number and then he reverse engineered it. And he said, all you have to do is save X number of dollars a year for the next number of years. Boom, boom, boom. And we kind of looked at it and it was aggressive, but it was like, oh, that's it. And it's like, that's it. Because what we had gotten before was we didn't know how much money we needed to save. We didn't know any of that. So it felt like any expense, you know, too much in groceries, We don't need a new lawnmower. We don't need this. We don't need that. Every expense was conflict. And now we said, look, we're giving at a level that we feel called to give. We're saving at a level that we want to save. That's done. And we're meeting all of our obligations. All our bills are current. 
we can decide what to do with the rest of this money. So that means, yeah, sometimes, you know, once every 10 years, there's a new lawnmower once, you know, or Tony's like, I want to go shopping and there's no fight over that. And she's not a huge spender on shopping, but, or, you know, I want to do something for the gardens this year. Great. Just go do it. And that created so much freedom because we got to what I could never satisfy on my own was Tony's need for security. And what she could never understand on her own was my need for freedom and the ability to go out and do some fun stuff with what we the God has given us. And so now we're able to navigate all that. And it's been, yeah. we rarely argue about money anymore. Mm. I don't think we do, Tony. Yeah. And money is such a tangible thing that it's helpful to use that as an example. But you can use that same process with really anything. Like, yeah. what are your values and expectations in parenting? What are your values mm-hmm. and expectations in your sex life, mm-hmm. you know, in, in your service life, whatever it might be, that process is so important. And sometimes you really do need that third party to help you clarify and navigate and negotiate. So yeah, that's key. That can save a lot of marriages right there. Well, and we have those conversations. Like I do not want to retire. I want to do a variation of this indefinitely. And then Tony and I have worked out, okay, so what does that look like? How many weeks off are we going to take every year? Mm -hmm. How many vacations? So we're taking our retirement as we go at this stage in life. And then how do we show up when our kids are here, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I think you're right. You can negotiate and talk about it. But if I, my junk is largely sorted out and Tony's junk is sorted out, then those conversations become cleaner conversations and they don't become all entangled in 33 years of resentment and bitterness and Mm. all the other stuff that gets dragged into the future. Well, we've got time to hit one more thing and it's really an important thing and it's forgiveness. Mm. So if you're in an unhappy marriage, it means that you've been hurt. You probably both have been hurt. You probably both have legitimate things that are hard to let go of. So talk about why forgiveness is so important to saving your marriage and then How do you actually move forward with that? What does that look like? Mm. Yeah, forgiveness sometimes is key because if you've hurt each other, if you have hidden grievances, you haven't been able to talk them through, they pile up and Mm -hmm. you you end up with a hardened heart and with a, a barrier between the two of you. And sometimes we kind of know that these hidden areas, these sore spots are there, but because of experiences in the past, we don't have confidence that we can move them or address them. And so it becomes something that that we we avoid or deny. So I think creating a habit or a practice of forgiveness is just key. It's so important. I think there's an easy way to visualize that that what you need to bring into an authentic conversation, it can't just be, you know, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and that's it. Uh, there's a good book by, um, great book by Gary Chapman and um, Jen Thomas called When Sorry Isn't Enough. They talk about five different apology languages. So not everyone receives an apology the same way. In apologizing to each other, you really need to get down to the root of the matter. You can't just mouth words and then expect that it's going to be okay for 
in terms of cleaning out the relationship from that hurt. And so, yeah, the easy way to visualize it, I think, is building steps, like building stone steps, ancient stone steps, you know, the three basic ingredients, stone, mortar, and water. And the stone represents justice. It represents that yearning for justice that we have. We None of us is the judge, so we can't take the place of that judge or arbiter. But we have the facts of what has happened and the feelings along with it need to be on the table. That's part of the stone. That justice is that ability for you each to share your story and share your heart over what has happened, even if it's something that's painful to hear. And then mortar is mercy. It's that ability to look at your spouse and recognize that, yes, they're human. They're a mixture of strengths and weaknesses, you know, beauty and brokenness. And then water that glues it all together is humility. It's that ability to own up to the hurt that you've caused and stay present with it and not run away. And so when you put all those ingredients together, of course, at first you're going to have a mess. You have, it would be messy to build stone steps. And it's also messy to enter into authentic conversations like that, where you share the facts and the feelings and struggle to have mercy and, and grab Mm -hmm. on to whatever humility you can. But when you endure and you go through the first conversation is probably going to be the most awkward, but then over time you've built these steps, you can use this practice, you use it over and over again, and it has the potential to take you to higher ground. Yeah. And so what you're talking about with forgiveness, it's not just the one-sided, I forgive you, but you're really describing reconciliation, how mm. it's both of you, like owning your stuff, asking for forgiveness, but then also extending forgiveness. And that's a much deeper process. I love how you use that analogy. Let's end with this. You know, is there hope? Like, have you seen in ministry, have you seen even within your law practice, marriages that by every right should have split apart? but they did this work of investing and they really have saved a marriage. Oh yeah. Yes. I I have seen that. I've uh, I could name many couples who say that they even had like marriage one and marriage two. <laughs> they themselves ended marriage one and and got into a better version. Certainly our experience is that at one point in the dark season of our marriage, I did feel hopeless. I did wonder whether it would ever be possible for me to be in love with Carrie. And then we dug in, we did the hard work, you know, we would take two steps forward and one step back and sometimes we'd succeed and sometimes we'd fail, but we kept going. And now our marriage, I think it's fair to say that it's better than either of us anticipated at the beginning of our marriage for this stage of our marriage. We just didn't have any idea that it could be this good. And we had no idea in that dark season what we would have walked away from if we had walked away. Yeah, I would just end it by saying, you know, at the center of the Christian faith is resurrection. And I think that's what we're living in right now. And that's a promise that extends to all of humanity through Christ. Well, I sincerely hope that this episode has shown you that there are other options to explore before deciding to get divorced. 
I think the perspectives that both Carrie and Tony shared and their personal experiences as a couple serve to show that unhappy marriages can, in time, really become happy ones. One of the statements that really stood out to me was the fact that couples who stay together were more likely to be happily married in five years than those who split. It's a hard idea to wrap your head around if you're in the middle of a stretch of marriage that's difficult. But if more of us believe that that were true, then maybe we'd see fewer divorces and a lot more healthy couples. If you'd like to get a copy of Tony's book before you split, we've linked to it in our show notes, along with a link to our blog post, How Do I Know If I'm In an Abusive Relationship? That's all for now. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to having coffee with you next time on Java with Julie.